Hello, and thank you for joining us today at the Morgan Stanley TMT conference. I'm James Fawcett, head of U.S. Payments and FinTech. And before we get started, I have a, a quick disclosure to read. Uh, that is that for important disclosures, please see morganstanley.com slash research disclosures. And I'm very pleased today to have Oliver Jenkin, Group President and Regional President for North America for Visa, joining us to, to talk about Visa. And, and Oliver, before we get started, I have to say, I do, I've done hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of these. And I think you bear the most resemblance in at least via video to your bio picture of anybody I've seen. So um, it's something that jumped out at me in this virtual environment. So I just wanted to mention that. Nice work. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, maybe I'll start with like the biggest topic that we get questions on, um, particularly from potential incremental investors in Visa. And, and that is crypto, Bitcoin, et cetera. You know, what is Visa's roadmap? What are you doing already? Like, how are you looking at, at, the, at crypto or, or Bitcoin specifically as as a potential player in, in the financial services space? Well, there certainly is, I agree, a lot of talk around cryptocurrencies and, and digital currencies, et cetera. At Visa, we think crypto could be meaningful, and we've been investing in it for a while now uh, accordingly. Uh, we think in the crypto space, we're uniquely positioned to help make it more secure, more functional, more useful, and more practical. Uh, and hence, we were excited to be involved. But let me let me take a step back and start at the beginning for how we look at crypto. We look at it in sort of two segments. There's cryptocurrencies, which represent sort of new asset classes like Bitcoin. Uh, these are predominantly held as assets, as investments, not really used as a medium of exchange for purchases. They're sort of like our CEO, Al Kelly, often refers to them as like digital gold. And then you've got uh, digital currencies that are stable coins, which are backed one for one with fiat currencies. And these are a different kind of emerging payment innovation that could actually have more of a direct impact on, on commerce and, and business like any other fiat currency. Um, but across those, there's sort of like four areas where we're very involved with, with both types of those digital currencies. First is purchase. This one's simple. But talking to wallets and exchanges to use Visa credentials to purchase cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or digital currencies. Very simple, but very important to make the whole thing work. The second is cash out. So working with users uh, of crypto exchanges or wallets to be able to have people cash out onto a Visa credential. So if you're holding a million dollars in Bitcoin and you want to go out to dinner, it's pretty hard to go and do that. But if you put a, a Visa credential on the front end of that crypto asset account, then you can actually use that, that asset value anywhere. So that's important for us. We have partnerships with about 35 of the large crypto wallets and exchanges, uh, including Coinbase, Crypto.com, BlockFi, et cetera. And so we'll continue to work on that. We think those partnerships could yield 50 million plus new Visa credentials. Um, it also, if we had more time, has opportunities in the cross-border B2B space as well. Uh, the third area we're working here is APIs and offering APIs for our financial services and, and fintech partners to be able to offer the ability to purchase cryptocurrencies. So, for example, if you're, a, say, a regional bank in the United States and you want to be able to offer the ability to purchase, say, Bitcoin through your online banking site or your mobile app, we can extend our APIs to that regional bank 
so that they can purchase, custody, and trade Bitcoin relatively simply. And then the fourth area is settlements. We've upgraded our infrastructure to enable partners to settle with us in digital currency, starting with USDC stablecoin. As you guys know, we transact in 160 currencies. We settle in 25, and we can add digital currencies as a, a, an additional uh, uh, transaction and, and settlement currency. And I guess if there's one last thing I'd say, we're increasingly having conversations with central banks as they think about designing potential central bank digital currencies, CBDC, and we're talking to them about how they think about design, et cetera. So there's a lot of talk, and, but there's actually a lot of action alongside it as well. Interesting. And, and you know, I, this is a topic that actually we could spend hours on, but I know we want to hit a lot of different things. So, so maybe we'll try to move rapidly through kind of the key, the key topics as they are today and, and come back and dive in if, if we have time or in, on a future date. But post-COVID-19, um, we've seen really strong growth in debit and COVID. And, and at the same time, COVID-related headwinds have been persisting in, in credit. And, you know, that could be because of the way stimulus has been distributed, plus just behavior, et cetera. Can you, can you talk about the trends that we've seen thus far in 21 and what, expect, what Visa expects volumes to look like post-COVID-19? Is there, uh, are we permanently in this debit credit mix the way we are today, or does it shift back more to credit? How are you planning for that in your business? Yeah, good question. Um, so let me start at a high level, and I'll, I'll go more specific as we go. Certainly, COVID has had a huge impact in terms of how people buy things and how they choose to pay. I think we're all familiar with that. If you look at the main trends that we've seen uh, since COVID hit, which are still true in 21. They're very consistent, these trends. But again, great, as you point out, great strength in debit, weakness in credit, uh, strong domestic spending, very strong e-commerce as we've pulled forward three, four, five years of customer habituation and, and muscle memory formation. They've pulled that forward across all segments. We think that'll stay. Cross-border, the positive side has been e-commerce cross-border. Obviously, cross-border travel is stubbornly low and will be for a while yet. Acceleration of tap-to-pay is another key trend. Uh, G2C, government's actually using digital payments more, is another trend we've seen. So those are the trends that have been around since the beginning. They're still true in 21, and we expect them to continue for a while. On your specific question, debit versus credit, let me just read my notes here on a couple data points. Um, globally, our fiscal first quarter... PV was about 5%, debit at 17, credit at negative 6. In the U.S., PV 8, debit up 21, credit down 3. And thus far up through to the 21st of January, last time we talked about this, um, same trends. So all of that's still true. We think it's going to stay for a while. We've also talked about what's driving debit, and a lot of it will stay. The acceleration of cash displacement, as people don't want to touch cash, and the growth of tap to pay. The growth of purchasing online, a lot of it non-discretionary spend online, which is disproportionately debit. And again, you can't use cash online. Um, in periods of economic uncertainty, another driver of debit, periods of economic uncertainty, people tend to spend what they have as opposed to borrowing. And so there's a shift from credit to debit. Forget the pandemic for a second. In any downturn, we consistently see that. And, of course, stimulus, in particularly in the U.S., with unemployment and federal stimulus, a lot of that on prepaid cards, which we count in our debit numbers. So all that has happened. So we expect debit growth to continue strong um, 
through this year for sure. But I do want to be clear, we think credit will come back. Um, credit always lags in difficult periods, as I mentioned. But this situation is particularly acute because discretionary affluent spend is weighed down because of the restrictions on, on affluent. Um, so affluent discretionary spend is often on restaurants, entertainment, travel. All of that's literally physically restricted. But we do think that you know, as vaccine distributes and as everything begins to recover, there'll be some pent-up demand, and we expect a good recovery to credit. And importantly, we expect a lot of that recovery in credit not to necessarily um, eat away and cannibalize that debit growth. We think a lot of it will be additive as people get out of the blocks and do the traveling that they want to do. So before I, I dig into a couple of things that you mentioned there, I, I should mention to those that are listening via the webcast, if you want to submit a, a question, you can do it via the webcast and, and we'll come to that in our converse, during our conversation with Oliver. So, you know, I guess the first thing I would ask at a high level, if you're expecting ongoing debit growth and then credit to come back, but particularly that debit portion, does that outlook, is that changing the view or how you and your partners, um, you know, view the, the structure of the partnerships, what kinds of partners that Visa should be looking for. Um, is there is, it, is there a different conversation that's happening with merchants and issuers, et cetera? Just wondering, like, how that, particularly that surprising pull forward that we've seen in the last year, plus the expectation of ongoing debit growth is, is changing, if at all, um, your conversations you have with all the different stakeholders. Yeah, I think the answer is uh, yes and no. I'll start with the no. No, it's not really changing the conversations. And, and the no argument is most of, our, most of our partnerships with any of our partners are pretty long-term in nature. So there's a little bit of this too shall pass, and therefore we're doing a long-term agreement. Payment credentials will always be changing in one way or another. We want to be partnering with the same types of players that we were partnering with before. And there's no major structural change that would you know, say that we don't want to talk to this group of issuers or this group of acquirers, et cetera. So in many ways, it's business as usual in those interactions. The yes, it has changed is this is a pretty seismic shock to how payments is taking place. And even though credit will recover, debit's still very strong, e-commerce will remain very strong, tap to pay is a big deal for retailers um, uh, uh, and merchants, a lot more online, a lot more new business models with buy online, pick up and store, a lot more omni-channel. So the specific tactics and partnership initiatives that we're working with with players are different, but the people that we want to work with, the players that we want to work with, are, are the same. We're just all pivoting and, and changing together. So talking about, about change and, and, and that kind of thing, I'm hitting on another like very hot topic right now is, is buy now, pay later. Um, we'll be hearing from a firm a little bit later today. Um, some of the buy now, pay later providers around um, have ambitions or have stated their ambitions to, to one day process their transactions on ACH and and move away from the card networks. What? How's how is Visa looking at the buy now pay later phenomenon generally, and, and from a global perspective? And and how would you characterize Visa's relationships uh, with the with these with the buy now pay later providers as they stand today? Yeah. So 
I think buy now, pay later is top of the list of topics right after crypto and the things that we're often talking about in settings like this. But listen, our uh, our strategy on buy now, pay later is sort of twofold: partnering with the providers that are out there and offering our own solutions. Let me let me talk about both of those and the dynamics within each. On partnering with the providers that are out there, we were early investors in Klarna and Payday. We're working with players such as Afterpay and Affirm and charge after, split it, et cetera. And there's a range of things that we do with these partners. Um, you mentioned one of them, but I'll go through sort of four, five, six of them now. First of all is obviously repayment. And when someone's actually made that purchase, they need to pay the installment provider. And that's one payment divided into four or five or six. And those are often on, often on Visa credentials. Different uh, providers rely on Visa credentials to differing extents, but we think it's a great value proposition for the consumer and the provider. And we think that'll be there for a while but there'll always be dynamics there. Uh, Another way we work together is virtual cards. So an installment provider using a virtual credential to actually pay the merchant seamlessly and easily. Another one is a digital card. So this is an installment provider provisioning a digital card into a consumer's wallet to complete a point of sale, physical point of sale installment transaction. Um, You've got value-added services where we'll provide risk or data services to an installment provider to help them be more efficient in their jobs. Uh, these are direct as ways to conduct merchant settlement or installment uh, settlement payments. There's also just debit or credit cards. So as an installment provider wants to broaden its relationship with its consumers, they'll want to offer debit or credit or prepaid cards for everyday spend. And all of those are products that we can work on together. So there's actually quite a long list of things that we can do to help round out and partner with those installment providers. And there's a lot of really good conversations happening there as they push to get themselves to scale. Um, On our own offering, as we've been out working with all of these installment partners, we've realized a few pain points in the industry. One is there isn't one ubiquitous global solution. Two, there's friction in the process where you actually have to sign up and uh, adjudicate the credit. And then you've got large issuers with plenty of open to buy who want to actually participate in this as well. So these are some friction pain points in the space. And so with our Visa installment solutions, we're leveraging our existing connectivity with issuers, with merchants, with acquirers, with processors around the globe to develop a solution that doesn't require customer sign-up, that leverages existing open to buy, um, and is a really simple and easy way to have installments work. And so um, in this solution, an issuer ahead of time can decide which consumers, which cardholders they want to give which installment packages to so that when that consumer shows up at a physical point of sale or online and uses their card at a participating merchant, they're immediately presented with that offer and it can flow through the regular connectivity in the Visa pipes to deliver it. And so we're working on some select markets around the world, including here in North America and the U.S. and Canada in particular. Um, and we'll continue to push on it. So overall, we think there's a lot of upside in BNPL for us, both through partnering with the providers that are, are doing it uniquely, um, as well as offering our own solution. And we'll continue to push on, on both of those both of those uh, paths. So when you look at, at and I, I think the partnership angle is, is interesting, and there's obviously a lot of, of things that Visa can do within the realm of its existing relationships, et cetera. But if we if we just look at a uh, just a you know plain vanilla buy now pay later transaction today, how are you thinking about that for for Visa? Is that incrementally positive, um, or is it incrementally negative? Or you know because on the one hand maybe the transaction 
goes outside, but then there's the repayment process. Like how, how are you thinking about a, a buy now, pay later transaction as it stands today outside of like your own, own offering and, and existing um, partners with partnerships with the issuers, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of, it's a bit of a mix. I mean, the first thing I'd say is um, different models will pop up in payments around the world all the time. And whether it's exactly what you want or close to what you want or something in between, our job is to sort of roll with it, see what the consumers and merchants are demanding and, and make the most of, of what's materializing. So we spend a little less time thinking about whether we want it to exist and what it means for us one way or the other. It's more, it is a reality. How do we adjust and add value to make it successful in a way that's successful for us as well? Uh, and what could we do with our existing partners to offer a solution? But it's certainly a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, for all of the things I mentioned on the partnership, those are good incremental uh, services for us to provide. And certainly BMPL generally is giving a lift in terms of sales um, to that merchant, presumably, or they wouldn't be doing it. Um, and I think also Visa is always a fan of the electronification and the efficiency of digital payments. And so if this drives more sales to digital, electronic, efficient payments versus sort of less efficient paper-based payments, that's a good thing. And we'll find a way to get our fair share of it. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but overall, uh, we see lots of opportunity in it. Got it, got it. I want to I want to turn a little bit to other fintechs, and and we've seen. Oh, fighting off a sneeze there. Sorry about that. So we've seen a lot of fintech uh, competitors uh, or players in the market, like Venmo, PayPal, Google, issuing Visa debit cards, and and to basically take advantage of of their own products, et cetera. How much of an impact are these types of, of new issuers having on, on debit right now? Uh, is it moving the needle for Visa at all, or is it something that you would anticipate to come further down the road, et cetera? Well, um, let, let me work my way into that question a bit and talk just about our philosophy on fintechs more broadly and then get to that specific sort of uh, uh, question on debit. But overall, when we think about about fintech, the ones that you mentioned, or even smaller startups. Um, our view is Visa is a network. And as such, it's not our job to pick winners and losers. We provide a platform. And the platform invites everyone to come and play and may the best idea win. And consumers and merchants can decide what's the best use case and they can compete and the winner will win. And generally that served us that, ser that serves us very well. And most of our clients, be they new fintechs or traditional players, they understand that. Uh, it's not our job to be kingmakers. So again, similar to my comment on BN BNPL, a lot's gonna happen in payments, and we just want it to happen on our platform in one way or the other and make sure it's a level playing field for that competition. Um, and I made a couple more things on fintech generally, then I'll hit your point. When we look at, at fintechs, Oftentimes, the things that fintechs look for from us are similar to what larger traditional players are looking for. There's brand, there's technology, there's access to our people and our expertise. Our brand is incredibly powerful and can drive great lift for any issuer. But for fintechs, they like to be able to draft off our brand. As they're investing in their own brand, they want the sort of security and halo associated with the Visa brand. 
Maybe less so with a, a Venmo or PayPal or some of the folks that you mentioned who have their own strong brands. But for a lot of the other startups, that's quite helpful. Um, a lot of fintechs want to lean on our technology quite heavily, not just the core five nines off clear settle, but also the 600 APIs, the billion a month uh, API calls that we receive. Fintechs want to be able to leverage that uh, from us um, in a meaningful way. And again, they want access to our, our people um, uh, and our capabilities as well. Now, on your specific question on what that means for debit, I mean, I think it has been positive for us. I mean, more people who are coming in and offering, you know, new dynamic digital ways to pay or be paid and are electronifying what otherwise would be less efficient paper-based cash payments, that's all good for us. And it generates great customer experience, um, great engagement, great digital habituation, and that's all good. So. We feel good about those folks coming into the space and, and mixing it up and offering new value propositions that are resonating with consumers and merchants. And, and maybe just a, a, a quick question tied back to your, your comment about an even playing field, et cetera. Um, one of the things that we've seen is that some fintechs have been able to take advantage of some of the, the differences that are out there in terms of um, debit interchange rates, et cetera, between large and, and small banks, um, et cetera. And, and you know, one of the things that we've seen, particularly for fintechs, is they look to drive that as a revenue source. We've started to hear some of the bigger banks, particularly like Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan, talking about how um, they thought that, that that type of loophole should be addressed. How, do you, how does Visa fit into that regulatory construct of making sure that there is a, an even playing field where it makes sense. Yeah, I don't really have any material comment to add uh, outside of the media back and forth on it. It's not really something that directly impacts us. Um, so it's not, I don't really have anything to add, but there, you're right. There has been interesting conversation on it, but it's not, it's not really our, we don't really have a horse in that race. That, that's fine. So let's, let's talk about, Incremental services, et cetera. Visa Direct is one that, that you guys have talked a lot about and, and has picked up a lot of, of interesting commentary um, over the last few years. And, and you, Visa itself has reported really strong growth in Visa Direct. Can you go through briefly for us the, the, the use cases for Visa Direct? Describe which of these use cases have gained the most um, traction, if you will, and, and tell us what you think the vision is for that longer term. Right. So when we think of Visa Direct, it's within the strategic uh, a pillar of new payment flows. And new payment flows is $185 trillion opportunity. There's two key engines within that, Visa Direct, which is about $65 trillion, and B2B, which is $120 trillion. So let me talk about a bit about Visa Direct. Um, it continues to grow incredibly well. We've got three, three areas we're focused on for the growth of Visa Direct, continuing to grow existing use cases, taking existing identified use cases and spreading them around the world, and coming up with new use cases. Those are the drivers. Um, just to rattle a few off, and I'll go into more detail, you've got P2P, you've got cross-border P2P and remittances, you have disbursements, such as insurance disbursements, uh, merchant settlement, uh, early wage access, gig economy payouts, account-to-account -account, uh, transfer and money movement. So there's a lot of 
there's a lot of use cases and, and more coming. In terms of which ones are growing well, it depends on when you ask. My father always used to say, you know, horses for courses, which essentially means different horses do well in different tracks, essentially. And, you know, if you would ask me which use cases in Visa Direct are the, are the you know, the killer apps pre-pandemic, I mean, biggest one of the biggest ones for us was, you know, Uber and Lyft driver payouts, so they could receive their money right at the end of of their of their shift. Well, that's clearly dried up a fair bit, but it's been replaced in a nice hedge with um, early wage access or cross border remittance, pushing money to my you know family back in Canada or, or what have you. So it's really been a nice mix and a nice hedge of different business cases, but. Again, P2P was the first use case. It's still going strong around the world. Cross-border P2P remittances is doing extremely well. We're partnering with MoneyGram, Western Union, Remitly, uh, TransferWise, and others. Insurance disbursements, I think it's seven of the top 10 PNC insurers uh, are in some capacity using Visa Direct to push out disbursements in emergency situations rather than waiting for a check when you need the money. Uh, earned wage access and payroll is very powerful for us, and we're happy with the progress we're making there. Merchant settlement, you know, marketplaces like Etsy, for example. I'm just making them up. I'm not announcing in a partnership or anything, but Etsy pushing money out to sellers around the world for goods that they're selling on their platform. You know, all of these are uh, great use cases, and it's also another example where we've got our network of network strategy because in, in FY20, to do our settlement, gosh, let me read my numbers here. To, to move that money, we touched on 16 card-based networks, 65 domestic ACH schemes, seven RTP schemes, and five payment gateways to be able to move that money from one endpoint to another. We've got a great advantage for all the cards that we've got out there, but we can also leverage other, other platforms to move it. So we feel great about it, and we think it's a very, uh, very versatile tool for us. Got it. And I've been mixing in questions that have come in from the, the audience um, as we've gone along. But to wrap up the last topic here, B2B, obviously very big, incorporate some of the, the um, investor questions here, but big investment area for, for Visa. How can we track your your progress with the in within B2B, I guess, generally? And can you talk about B2B Connect and, and other solutions and what stages of development are we? You know, what's happening from a revenue margin contribution? How are we? How should we be thinking about the the, the development and and beginnings of, of contribution from B two B? Yeah. So just as a reminder, 120 trillion, 20 trillion cardable, like teeny P card, virtual card, uh, 10 million, 10 trillion cross border, um, 90 trillion domestic APAR. Um, if you go through each of those. You know, quickly, like the cardable 20 trillion, this is ground that we've been wrestling in for a while. And so I think our success there is going to be watching wins. I think a key thing for us, for you to focus on for us is in the virtual space. That's where we're spending a lot of our time and focus on issuer engagement, new vertical expansion with OTA, health, education, et cetera. And, you know, working through just efficiency and getting that really proliferating in the market. So in cardable, so a lot going on, lots of deals in the space, virtual is key. B2B Connect you asked about. Listen, B2B Connect, we feel great about. It takes a while to get this built out and running. You would have seen our announcement on Goldman Sachs uh, recently leveraging B2B Connect. It joins uh, a range of other banks. Our pipeline is 
very, very strong here. We feel great about this. But again, it takes a bit of time to do the work, to sort of make the sales, to get the integration. But we're solving a big, significant problem. The current model with correspondent banks and handoffs and poor data quality and limited transparency, uncertainty on timing, and it's quite expensive. We think this is an investment that uh, is going to pay off significantly. And I, like I said, the, I won't share the details, but the pipeline is really, really rich. We feel great about it. We can operate in 80 countries today. We'll have another, I think, 30 in the next 18 months or so. So B2B Connect, uh, we feel wonderful about a little bit more time to sort of build out and get the implementations in place, but we feel wonderful. Um, and then the 90 trillion APAR, someone is going to crack this. The invoice, PO, paper-based reconciliation headache that happens in domestic APAR, someone is going to solve this. We can't solve it by ourselves. We need the assets and capabilities of other people to join us, but we're going to partner to get good success here. We talked about Paymate in India, which is 35,000 um, suppliers and, and buyers working together. Um, what we've got with uh, Bill Trust and the business payment network in the U.S. is going very well for us. So this is also going to be sort of medium-term horizon to really build this out. But our commitment to B2B is long-term. We will absolutely have great success in this space. Um, but just a bit more infrastructure and time and work to get this built out. But we feel great about the progress we're making. Oliver, thank you very much for joining us here at the Morning Stanley TMT conference. Last question as we wrap up. What big takeaways should we have from the, the whiteboard behind you as it relates to, to BSO? What, what, if we have sharp eyes, what should we learn here? Well, there's two important things. My daughter did me a picture which said, be nice. So takeaways to be nice. And the rest of it is like high school algebra and chemistry. It's where my daughter does her homework in the evening. So <laughs> it's of no use to you as investors, I'm afraid. <laughs> all right, Oliver. Hey, thank you very much for joining us. All the best. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. All right. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Thank you.